Hope y'all are doing well. And that is absolutely the case as we look at the text today. Um, Christ is going to be talking to a messy church with messy people. So um, if uh, you have a Bible, you can open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And we will get to see kind of this unfolding story of what we're talking about uh, in 1 Corinthians 5. Um, We uh, have been going through the book of 1 Corinthians now. This is our fifth week. And... Uh, just to give you an overview, if you haven't been here, the way the, the, the book kind of is broken into is really two main sections. Chapters 1 through 6 is, are the first section, and 7 through uh, 15 is the other section. Uh, 16 is the other section. And the first chapters 1 through 6 are the things that Paul is writing about regarding what Chloe's people had told Paul. So if you look at chapter 1, verse 11... It says, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people. So Chloe's people came to Paul and they had a list of things that were going on in this particular church. And the things that were going on were, were fourfold. One, there were divisions or factions in the city, and, and, sorry, in the church about leadership. Number two, there was a case of incest. Number three, Christians were suing each other. Number four, uh, because there was a history of prostitution in the city, some Christians were known to continually uh, visit prostitutes. Those four things were going on, uh, and so Chloe's people wrote to Paul about those things. That's chapters 1 through 6. Now, at chapter 7, verse 1, there's a shift, there's a, there's a turn in there. You can see, now about the things you wrote. So Paul is going to say, all right, you wrote me a letter with a bunch of questions. Now I'm going to answer all those questions about marriage, mood sacri- uh, food sacrifice to idols, head coverings, gifts, things like that. So Paul answers, and even the resurrection, Paul answers those things uh, in the second half of the chapter. So we're still in the first half, and we're going on that second list there, that, Clo- uh, that fir- first list that Chloe had, second item, which today is um, a man caught in an incestuous relationship. Uh, t- so that's where we are. And so uh, if, when you, if you were here early, you heard Jordan say that this one's a little much more mature themed in, in first service and even second service. We have elementary age kids. They won't be in here because of the mature nature and, and the, the, not grotesque, but at least the plain frank talk that we'll have as we look at it. So um, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So let's, let's do this. Uh, let's, let's read the text together and then uh, we'll pray together. So let's stand as we read 1 Corinthians 5. At the very end, I'll say it's the, the word of the Lord. You'll say, thanks be to God. And that's just a reminder of us all that this is God's words to us, not mine, not Paul's. Uh, even though it is Paul's, but it's God's more specifically. And so since that's the case, we have to submit ourselves to it in what it says. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit And, as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you are already unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, but the leaven of, which is the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexual immoral people. 
Not at all meaning the sexual immoral of this world or the greedy of the swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you <clears throat> not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual morality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not to even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. You can sit if you'd like. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we thank you for this uh, time. We thank you for your word. We we pray, God, that you would come now and definitely what is a hard text, uh, be with us in these moments, that our minds and hearts would be yielded to your spirit, that you would, as we look at and, and, and learn and study a text that certainly has a very specific, unique, interesting case, but definitely difficult, that we would not think it has nothing to do with us right now, but we would see that there are implications and applications we can have, even right now. Uh, and we pray that our hearts and minds would be submitted to uh, the leading of the Spirit, and that if there's any ongoing, unrepented sin in even our own life, that we would be made aware of it right now, and that we would repent. We pray that all of us would not have stick, stiff necks towards you and your spirit and your word. But God, that we would have um, submissive hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We should start by noting that it is a grace of God that we are studying this text as we're going through 1 Corinthians 5. And this case or a case like this for us is in the abstract, not a reality. We should... Thank the Lord for that, that we don't have right now, even in the midst of our, our, our church, a known case where someone has sexual immorality at such a horrible level that we have to grab 1 Corinthians 5 and teach on it because there's something like this going on. We should praise God for that. That's a, that's a grace upon grace. And we pray that that would be the case forever. As long as we're a church, that we would be, um, we would be kept from this. Uh, we know from the text some things. Verse 1, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality. So this is the word porneia in Greek. This is where the word pornography comes from. This is the big, huge, junk drawer term that, that kind of addresses all kinds of sexual morality. It can mean fornication. It can mean uh, sleeping with someone that's not your wife. It can also mean um, homosexuality. It can mean all kinds of things, right? This is porneia, a big, huge, junk drawer term. Uh, and as we're Looking at it, we know that there's a specific kind of porneia or sexual immorality going on. Specifically, there's a man sleeping with his either mother, his own mother, or his father's wife, which would be a stepmother. It's one of those two. Um, the text isn't completely clear. A, a man has his father's wife. Uh, it could be, it could be his own mother, but likely it's his father's wife, his stepmother. Uh, the the father could be alive or dead. We don't know. Uh, Either one, in either case, Paul uh, and God see that as not good. Uh, And specifically in Leviticus 18.8, I think it's Leviticus 18.8, this this is expressly not allowed. So we know that that's the case thus far, um, that a man is sleeping with either his mom or his father's wife. His dad's either alive or not. If his dad's dead, she probably 
could have, or he could have, we don't know, uh, he would be an heir to a lot of money, and he would, she, maybe she would want to um, stay in the family and keep the money um, by being with the son. Um, the lady in this particular text, if you noticed, was not addressed at all. There's, there's really no mentioning besides that of father's wife. That's the only time she's mentioned. She's not, she's not directly said anything towards likely. We can presume that she's not a member of the church, and that's why. The man was a member of the church, and so Paul is addressing it here. So as we read this, there are certainly a lot of things and a lot of questions that jump out at the page, particularly when we look at it through the grid of the 21st century church, where we see things like remove a sinner from the church. Is that the case? I thought that the church was supposed to be a, uh, a welcoming place for sinners. Is that really what you're supposed to do? Deliver him over to Satan? Is that what Paul just told them to do to this particular Christian? Is that right? Is that really something that you should say? Uh, don't ever associate with people that are sexually immoral. Is that really what's happening there? Don't even uh, have a meal with them? Is that, is that right? Is that how you're supposed to think about this? What does that actually mean when it says purge them from among you. So there's, there's a lot of, uh, lot of questions that can arise when we look at this. And so um, I want to just say that we are starting with the assumption as we look at 1 Corinthians 5 that church discipline is right and good. It's both of those things. Now, if you want to hear a sermon on church discipline, you can go to our iTunes account on August the 5th, 2012. Jack, as we were preaching through the book of Matthew, uh, exposited Matthew chapter 18. So you could go to Matthew chapter 18. It's part two of his series that he was doing. You could go find it on August 5th, 2012, where he looks at Matthew 18. So I'm not going to go over to Matthew 18. The only thing I'll say about Matthew 18, presumably, is right now that there's really three steps in a process of someone caught in repentance. If you look at Matthew 18, chapter 15, uh, Matthew 8, chapter 18, verse 15, it says that if there's someone caught in sin, someone who knows them goes to them one-on-one. Uh, the circle of, of knowledge of this sin needs to stay, stay small. They go to them. They tell them. They try to win them over to repentance. If they do, done. It's over. Church discipline never happened. Um, if that doesn't happen, then two people go to that person trying to win them over to repentance back to Christ. If they do repent, over, done. There's no necessarily like time period, day one, day two, day three, tell, it's none of that. There, there presumably could be, could be a month, two months of each step. There's not a prescribed amount. But step three is then if they don't repent, then you tell it to the church. The church knows and then you would, you would send them out of the church for a time period. As Paul uses this language, uh, hand him over Satan, which we'll get to. But we're going to start with the presumption that church discipline is two things, both right and good, and that uh, the idea that you can't judge other Christians is not in the Bible. That's just not in the Bible. Uh, to tell Christians you shouldn't judge is, is a little bit silly with the numerous kinds of texts that are in the Bible that tell us if, if a brother is caught in sin to go to him. You can't go to him unless you have presumed to know that he's in sin. And you've already judged. So like there's, there's multiple, multiple, multiple verses that um, God tells us for a Christian to look at another Christian's life. And hopefully they would know each other, right? Uh, and that they are and they should go to them. And that we should practice going to them and trying to uh, talk to them in such a way that they would not want to stay in that particular sin. So as we're looking at chapter 5, uh, there's kind of three big parts. This isn't the way we're going to look at it. But I'll tell you kind of the three big parts of chapter 5. Number one, you can see in, 
this won't be on the screen. In verses kind of one through five, Paul outlines the case of the incest, what's going on, and he gives a judgment towards it that the person needs to be expelled and, and, or, or removed from, from the church. In verses six through eight, it, he does a little bit of a, an analogy or a, an argument by analogy where he talks about the lump and how leaven comes into the lump and the whole lump is contaminated and he compares that to the church and the pure, purity of the church is, is at jeopardy. And then after that, in verses 9 and following, uh, he had apparently written a letter to them already. We, we have what, I know it's 1 Corinthians, but we actually have the second letter to the Corinthians. And 2 Corinthians is actually the fourth letter to the Corinthians. We don't have the first and third letter. We don't know where they are. But Paul, in verse 9, addresses that very first letter that he had written. You can see, I wrote to you in my letter. Uh, and so when he wrote to them in that letter, he, he's clearing up the matter that they misunderstood. And so from 9 and following, he's going he's gonna to address that, that misunderstanding. That's kind of the big way it's going to be looked at. But I want, to, uh, I want to look at it in a little bit of a different way. First, let's make sure we can understand uh, one more time what's going on. We see an act of sexual morality where a man is sleeping with his own wife. And, and remember, we're in Corinth, all right? 400 years of temple prostitution uh, had been practiced in the city and everybody was totally fine with prostitution and sexual morality. And this is where Paul says, and this particular kind of sexual morality, it's not even tolerated among the pagans. It's not even tolerated among the pagans. And he's in Corinth, the, the city that is absolutely, completely tolerant of sexual morality and it's not tolerated in Corinth and yet the church in Corinth is tolerating it. So if you noticed, as we read through 1 Corinthians 5, there's not a word directed towards the man caught in sin, caught in incest. Every word of chapter 5 is directed towards the church. The church is wrong. The church is being pointed out as what they're doing as tolerating sin. The church needs to change. The church needs to do something. And so as Paul's looking at uh, and talking to them in 1 Corinthians 5, he's all the directives, all the directions in chapter 5 are towards the church. So uh, I want to look at it as what's the goal? What's the goal that Paul is trying to accomplish? You can go ahead and put up the first title screen. And each of these goals are the directions that Paul is giving. So what's the goal here? This is directed towards the church, not the man, and incest. And so all the directions that are given in chapter 5 uh, are towards the church. These are the things the church should do. Therefore, these are things that we should strive for in our own church. And if ever, Lord willing, it doesn't happen. If ever something like this does happen, we know what are the goals that we are trying to accomplish if something like this happens. You can see the first goal um, is the salvation of the individual. That's the first goal is that the individual would be saved. You can see that in verse 4 and 5. You can see it. It says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, and of course the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Why? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So the goal, the ultimate goal in practicing church discipline, we just have to assume that as we're coming into reading 1 Corinthians 5, that steps 1 and 2 have been practiced. And now Paul is made known of that situation. And he is, he is implementing stage 3 of Matthew 18, verse 17 already. And he's saying, this person needs to be handed over to Satan. They need to be dispersed. And what's the goal? The goal is so that he would be saved. How is it that he would be saved? Well, Paul says specifically in verse 5, that he would be saved by delivering this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. <laughs> now, what does that mean, right? Delivered over to Satan, is that, 
Is that the church's practice? Let's just hand this man over to Satan. We're the church. That doesn't sound like it jobs, right? So what does it mean? It's only two options here, right? It's either A or B or one or however you're counting. A literal curse of death. Like hand this person over to Satan. He will now be a minion of Satan and he will serve Satan the rest of his life and go to hell one day. Hand him over to Satan. He's the devil's now. It's either that, hand him over to Satan, or hand him over to Satan is a figurative way of speaking of excommunication, of kick him out of the church for a season. I think that it's B. It makes most sense that it's B because when he says it in verse 5, you are delivered this man over Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that he may be saved. I mean, that just to me means he's not forever going to go to hell. Paul wants him to be saved and repent. So when church discipline is, is, or we could say here, when someone is handed over Satan or they're a believer and they are taken out of the church because they have ongoing, unrepentant sin, the goal always is that they would repent and come back to Christ. And in this particular situation, this man who's sleeping with his father's wife, Paul's only uh, final step is to hand him over to Satan. Now, this language is, is something that Paul has implemented in before. Uh, and whenever you read 1 Timothy chapter 1, uh, at verse 20, he uses this, exact, this very same language. There's uh, Hymenaeus and Alexander. He says that among our Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they might not learn to blaspheme. So this language is certainly uh, used in the Bible. And when we hear this handed over to Satan... We should think of not for permanent death to go to hell, instead for correction in order that they might repent and come back. So it's, it's a figurative way to speak about the excommunication process that needs to happen. Not just let him go to hell. It's not that. And the hope is that whenever you do this, whenever you excommunicate someone or remove him from among you or purge him, uh, the evil person, as it says in verse either 2 or verse 13 or even verse 5. When this happens, the hope is that him being removed from the church and cast out into the world, cast out into the world that's dominated by the evil one, that this man would see the effect of his sin and be awakened to the seriousness of it, of that if he doesn't repent, he will go to hell. And being out there among the evil, because he's been in the church and he understands the blessings of being in the church, that would awaken him and he would come back to Christ through repentance. So the salvation of the individual is what uh, the goal is. Now, you can even ask another question, which would be right, to say, okay, deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Uh, what does that mean when it says the destruction of the flesh? In the Greek word, sarks. It says Jesus came in the sarks, in the flesh. Uh, does it mean literally de- destroy his flesh? I don't think it literally means the literal destruction of the flesh. When Paul uses this word sarks and contrasts it with spirit, a lot of times, uh, usually in his letters, when he's talking about the flesh versus the spirit, he's talking about a comparison of the old nature versus the new nature. Who we were and who we are. The flesh is who we were. The spirit is now who we are. And so it makes sense if that's, if that's the case. And that's probably how Paul is saying it, is to turn him over to Satan for the destruction of the old nature. For the old nature to be killed off so that he would be awakened by being uh, in the realm of darkness and that he would then uh, return and being back to be a new man. Now, we need to realize, uh, turning someone over to Satan in this process, when God does it, because God is sovereign, uh, Satan has no rule over this man. God is still sovereign. Satan is still a dog on a leash that God can 
can allow at any certain point, and so when he turns him over, he can only, this Satan can only do what God allows, and the point of the goal would be that he would be saved. It's not like, turn him over to Satan, God has no control. God has control over everything, even over Satan. So turning him over to Satan is not removing him from the power of God. And the rule of God and the reign of God, uh, God is all-powerful, absolutely. And so turning him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh is uh, a figurative way to talk about excommunication so that the, the old nature would be killed off. He would then see the seriousness of his sin and return. Blomberg, uh, a commentator, says this way, the whole point of disfellowshipping him is to so shock, that is a split infinitive, and I did notice it, and I thought it was... I'm a nerd. You don't even know what that is, right? Okay, I'll stop talking. The whole point of disfellowshipping is to so shock the persons involved by the severity of the church's disapproval that they're stimulated to change their behavior after less radical action has left them unaffected. In other words, step one and step two didn't work, and they weren't affected to repent. It didn't bother them that people that love Jesus, that love them, came to them and begged them to come to Christ. And so the, the act of putting them out of the church and saying, you're now out of the church... Until you repent of that sin, you're not allowed to come back. Um, Awakens them to the point to where they would repent. And the whole goal, as we've said, is the salvation of the individual. Therefore, as the church, if this ever were to happen, we would pray like crazy for them. That they would be awakened. It's not mean-spirited for us to follow the Bible. It, It feels weird. It's very difficult. It feels like it is mean to say you can't be a part of the church. You would think, well, the church is the best place for them to be. God thinks differently here. And someone who's claimed the name of Christ, who is an ongoing, willful, unrepentant sin, the best place for them, apparently, is not in the church, acting like it's fine. But instead, to be out in the realm of darkness and to be so awakened by that reality that they would want to come back to Christ. And we do this, by the way, not happy, not in a spirit of judgment, like, ha ha, we're, look at us, we're, we're so much more spiritual than you. We get to take, instead, we do this with absolute weeping. We are devastated, devastated. Specifically because we're speaking the abstract, so it's hard for us to think. If we were speaking the reality, it would be someone you know. Someone that you've hung out with. Someone that you've gone to carowinds with. Or someone that you've gone to football games with. Or someone that you've had over and you did karaoke. Or I don't know what you did when you were... You did something, right? You've hung out with them in an ongoing time. They've told you what's going on in their life. They've told you what makes them cry. They've told you that you've shared similar experiences in community group or in life. They've helped you do stuff around your house. You've helped them do stuff. And then you find out that they have uh, cheated on their wife for four months, five months. And you're just like, do I even know you? How's that even possible? It it would break your heart for this to happen. It would break your heart. But, and I've seen it, uh, church discipline or handing someone over to be out of the church does awaken hearts. It does awaken hearts. It does so shock them into repentance whenever they are turned over into the realm of darkness. And the Lord does, uh, as it says, destroy the flesh or destroy the old man and awaken them to what's the reality is that the gospel proclaims us to be the new man. That's the first goal, the salvation of the individual. Remember, these are directions to the church. Church, you want that man to be saved. The second thing, church, you want your church to be pure. The second goal is the purity of the church. 
the purity of the church. And they were absolutely fine with a contaminated, unpure church. They were absolutely fine with it. And Paul has a lot to say to them about it. Specifically in this analogy, you can see it in verse 6 and 7. Your boasting's not good. I mean, they're, they're boasting about their tolerance. Or they're boasting about their, their okayness of having uh, an impure church. Do not know that a little leaven, notice this here, because we, we, this is so contrary to the way that we think. We think that's their sin, and it doesn't affect me. He just needs to get his act together. Paul, that's not Paul, and that's not biblical. He says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You probably read that in Galatians 5 as well. Uh, it's, a, it's maybe a, a common proverb at the time. But a little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little bit of sin, uh, when it's in there, causes the entire lump or the entire church to also, because it's pervasive, be and be a part of, and be tolerant of, and therefore be a part of sin. That's the analogy he's saying. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, take out the sinner, so that you can be a new, presumably clean lump, clean, pure church. You need for that to happen. Until he's removed, you are still impure. And you shouldn't be. Christ's bride should not be impure. She should be pure. And so that's why he reminds you, and this is just this sweet little gospel reminder right there in 7b which I think really is in the middle kind of launches itself up as the awesome kind of beacon of light shining light on the rest of the chapter Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed Jesus has been sacrificed for a pure church you can be a pure church repent from your sin therefore you will be a pure this is the uh, hold true to what you've already attained become who you already are And so he reminds them who they are, that they are supposed to be a pure church. And Paul makes it clear in verses 6 and 7 that serious sin in the church affects the whole congregation, not just the person that's caught in the sin. I want you to notice the imagery. It's something that's small, leaven, penetrating and infiltrating something that's large, sin. Sin's infiltrating the church. And a little bit of that sin... In the bread makes the entire loaf leaven. The little bit of sin makes the entire church impure. One man's unrepentant sin in the church, one man's sexual immorality is literally contaminating the entire church. And don't miss it, the entire church is held responsible for that. Not just the man. All of the words that Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 5 are to the church, not the man. He's holding the church responsible for it. The purity of them. So how about you? Have you even thought of that? If you're a member of Remedy Church, your ongoing, unrepentant, willful, serious sin affects the holiness of the entire church. And so we implore you and we beg you to, to repent of that. And if you know of that, you should not be tolerant of that in your own church or in your own community group, in your own family. We all should seek purity. And we're going to talk about this in a little second, about the way that happens and the, the arrogance that can come off and we think we're holy. We're going to talk about that in a second. Uh, the way that, that, that happens. But we need to notice that it's so key here that this is not a one-time affair that it's all kind of just been happened once and everybody's moved on. For it says in verse 1, for a man has his father's wife. Present tense. Ongoing. Continual. Unrepentant. And so when that's the case, uh, Paul is addressing not the brother who's living in sin, but the entire church, and he holds them accountable by standing by and doing nothing about their brother who is caught in unrepentant sin. So the primary issue of 1 Corinthians 5 
is not the brother's sin, which that's what we would think because we're in 2017 in America. The primary issue is the church's toleration of the brother's sin. The church's toleration. And we don't think about this. We, we think about sin individual, individualistically. We think about it as that's their deal. That's their business. That's his problem. That's their stuff. And that's exactly what the church in Corinth was saying. And Paul rebukes them for that. He rebukes them for that. When you are a church member, that means you are part of the family. Therefore, unrepentant sin in your life or in your brother's life is the whole church's business. It's the whole church's business. Now that sounds like, that's not the kind of stuff I need to get into then. I just like to live my life and do my thing. Well, I understand that. And I have that absolute impulse too. But it's just not biblical. It's not biblical for me to feel that way. We're all accountable for this if this is happening. So how do we seek the purity of the church? In what way should we, as Christians, are there directions, and I think there are too, directions that we seek purity in the church when this kind of thing is happening? What are the things that we should do? One, before we do anything, we ourselves should do something. Before we address the person, we should do something. Number one, it's right there. Uh, this is 2A, or 2-1, whatever. Uh, the first thing you see it in verse 2, First, we are to mourn over unrepentant sin. To seek the purity of the church, what do we do? We mourn over unrepentant sin. You can see it right there in verse 2. You're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? This word here, mourn, is implying sorrow over the sins that's going on in the church in such a way that we desire confession would happen, full recognition would happen, and that repentance would happen and come back to Christ. The church in Corinth had become so casual, so complacent with this particular man's sin, unrepentant sin in their midst, they, they were actually boasting about it, and they were fine. And Paul's telling them the first step towards this is to mourn. Christian and church members should mourn over unrepentant sin in their church. Uh, there's a book called Hole in Our Holiness by Kevin DeYoung. He says this, uh, one night in seminary, a bunch of us got together to watch the third Indiana Jones, the one about the Holy Grail. And if you've seen it, you may remember that in this installment of Indiana Jones, Harrison Ford is Indiana Jones. He goes and fights the bad guys with his dad, Sean Connery. Uh, And at this particular point in the film, there's this surprising kind of line that comes from the senior Dr. Jones, Sean Connery, where he reveals that he and his son had slept with the same Nazi woman. And it's meant to, in the movie to be a kind of funny scene. And most of the seminarians, Kevin DeYoung writes, most of the seminarians in the room as we're watching this movie, both men and women, laughed out loud. But then an older man, respected student, uh, in the room, uh, and he says, not, Kevin DeYoung says, not me, called out the whole group. He says, guys, they're talking about fornication and incest, and it's really not funny. Uh, and he says, I think most of the people were in there annoyed with this guy, with the sermonizing that he did. But the more I've thought about this incident over the years, the more I think the older man was right. A man and his father were fornicating with the same woman, even in the movie. Uh, And this kind of immorality was not even tolerated even among the pagans in Paul's day in the city of Corinth. He told the Corinthians that they should mourn over it, but we laugh. Now, we don't necessarily laugh in remedy about that, right? It hasn't happened, so we don't know how we act. We probably would not laugh. But the whole point is taken. The first step towards purity in the church is that we ourselves should be weeping over it. We should mourn about it. We should not have a casual approach. One writer said, a church that doesn't mourn over sin, especially sin with its own fellowship in its own church, is on the edge of spiritual disaster 
when we cease to be shocked by sin, we lose a strong defense against the fight in sin. A casual approach to other people's sin in the church leads to a casual approach to sin in your own life. A casual approach to sin in your own life leads to a casual approach to sin in other people's life. And they feed off each other and they're reciprocal. And so we need to take in our own church, in our own body, in our own members, and the people that we love, the people that trust us, their sin important. So we take our own sin uh, serious. We should take their sin serious, so we take our own sin serious. So the first thing for maintain the period of the church is when we see it, we mourn over it so that we feel the full weight of it, so that it bothers us, not just now, but the next time, and the next time, and the next time. Because it's going to happen again because we're sinners. Not only do we mourn over the unrepentant sin, we remove the unrepentant sinner. Again, that's in verse 9 and 11. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexual morality, people, sexual moral people. Now, I've already talked about this, but <clears throat> this is where Paul addresses the removing of the unrepentant sinner. And this is the, the, the confusion. He had written, a, obviously in the first letter, saying, don't hang out with people that are sexually immoral. And they thought that meant everybody. Christian or non-Christian, don't hang out with people that are sexually immoral. And Paul says, you can't do that or else you have to leave earth. Like, you got to go live in space or in Mars because there's no person, uh, non-Christian, that's not sexually immoral. And likely, it's tough to find those uh, in general. So he says, uh, I wrote you not to, sexuate, not to, in my letter, not to associate with sexual moral people, not at all meaning sexual moral people of the world or the greedy swindles or idolaters, since you would have to go out of the world. Like, you have to leave earth to be away from sinners. So he's saying, I'm writing to you now to clear that up, verse 11, that you won't associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. I think some versions say who, who is a so-called brother or a so-called Christian. Someone who says they're a believer, but's not acting like it. He says, in that instance, in that particular case, those are the people that you are uh, to not associate. People that are in willful sexual immorality, you don't. And actually, Paul actually expands the list in verse 11. So you can see, he's not just dealing with sexual sexual immoral people, but he also talks about other people that have willful, ongoing, unrepentant sin of, not just sexual morality, you can see it in verse 11, uh, greed, idolatry, reviler, drunkard, swindler. Uh, he, he keeps going and expands the list that when people have willing, unrepentant sin, that we as a church take that seriously and we actually don't associate it with them. Um, we don't even eat with them. And this is the only place that Paul talks like that. If you're thinking, man, Paul, this, do you dislike this guy that much? Do you know him? Is this something that kind of language that you use. It's not Paul just having a bad day when he wrote this, this letter to Corinth. He talks like this in other places, in Thessalonians and uh, Titus and 2 Timothy. In Thess- 2 Thessalonians, he says, keep away from brothers that are like this. In 2 Thessalonians 3, he also says, take note of that person, have nothing to do with them. 2 Timothy 3, 5, he says, avoid people. Titus 3, 10, he says, have nothing more to do with them. So he, he uses this kind of language of Christians, so-called brothers, that are in ongoing willful uh, unrepentant sin, that we are to not hang out with them. We are not associate with them. So you can ask, and a very valid question would be, well then, all Christians need to be perfect then in order to be in the church. Um, No. Gordon Fee answers that. He says, Paul is not advocating that only sinless people can be members of the Christian community, or else it would be empty, right? None of us would be allowed there. Um, Rather, he's concerned about those who persist in the activities which they have been 
freed from through the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. That's the whole point of verse 7b. Christ, the Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Become who you are. Don't persist. Turn and repent. But willful ongoing repentance is just a a spitting on the cross and saying, that's not sufficient. I can, I, can, I can keep sinning or it's no big deal or you didn't have the power, Jesus, to overcome the sin that I have here. Uh, and so we're told in this particular case, if there's people that are ongoing and unrepentant, that we even in verse 11, you can see not to even eat with such a one. Wow. Is that what it really means? Don't even have them over for dinner. Um... It's one of two things. It's one of two things. And here, I think that we can say, I, I think in uh, the other text that was a little bit, little bit not sure where it says, verse 5, hand this man over to Satan. I don't think that means he goes to hell. I think that means um, hand him into the, the outs, outside of the church so that he'll come back to faith. I think, I think there's no argument on that one. Here, I think that you could probably say one or the other. I, I, I can tell you what I think. I can tell you what I think. And you can just decide what you think here. When we say don't even eat with such a one, there's two possible views here. Uh, Gordon Fee, one of the commentators, says this means exclusion from the Lord's table. If you read the rest of 1 Corinthians, there certainly is interchange of language between meals and the Lord's Supper. And so, uh, especially because of the context of the book, he says that this means exclusion from the Lord's table. He would be fine with him being in church services, and I think I would be okay with that. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a tough little thing to understand, uh, but he, he would say he can't come and, eat and take part of the Lord's Supper until he repents. That would be Gordon Fee. The other commentators, Blomberg, Morris Garland, and, and others, would say, yes, it's exclusion from the Lord's table, but it's also actually uh, preventing him, excluding him from meals with Christian church members. And Garland says it the best. This is how he says it. Um, describing the ancient culture, the first century culture about meals. He says, eating together connoted more than just friendliness in the ancient culture. It created an actual bond between the people. When Christians ate together, it reinforced and confirmed the solidarity that was established by their shared confession of faith in Christ. Refusing to eat with fellow Christians guilty of such acts like this breaks all social ties with them as well as excludes them from the Lord's Supper. And this exclusion certainly may seem harsh and intolerant, and a reversion back to what could be considered the narrow separatism of the Pharisees. But Christians, who are no different morally from unbelievers, blur the clear distinctions between the church and the world and destroy the testimony of God's transforming power in their lives. Therefore, those who blatantly are immoral cannot be allowed to represent what it means to be a Christian. And as one person interprets this, he goes, Uh, By saying we're not going to eat with such a one, this shows them, this is the way to tear from him the mask which he covers himself to the shame of of the church and Christ himself. And so I think, as I read it, that not to eat with them literally means not to eat with them. I think it literally means that. Now, I agree with you if you're like, what? (laughs) I'm troubled by that, right? That bothers me. It shouldn't, because it's God's word. I'm supposed to be submissive to it. But here I am, right? That's how I feel. As I read it, it seems to be with the collection of Corinthians and Thessalonians and Titus all put together, not to even eat with such a one, certainly thinks, in my mind, that for that person who claimed themselves to be a brother, that you should not eat with them. Now, let's be careful here, right? Jesus ate with the sinners. Yes, I agree 100%, and so should we. 
So let's just all admit there has to be a difference, a distinct difference between a non-Christian who's never been in the church, never claimed Christ, and is just, you know, has no clue what they're doing, right? Those are the people we eat with, we win, we share Christ with, we pray for, we hope that they come to Christ. There's a distinct difference between them and someone who actually became a Christian, who claimed the name of Christ, and now we treat as an unbeliever. That unbeliever and that unbeliever are different. They're different. We can have a different viewpoint on whether we should eat with them or not. Um, I want to eat with that person. I want to. It makes me feel troubled. But I think the scripture here is saying we do eat with that one, the unbeliever that's never come to Christ, but the one who was a Christian, who claimed Christ, who's in willful, ongoing, unrepentant sin, I think that handing them over to Satan is also meaning anything where Christians get together and it's reserved for just believers, just believers, they shouldn't be present. They shouldn't be present. So, and even sometimes eating. Now, I think you can go both ways. There's people that love Jesus that go both ways on that. I'm just telling you what I think that the scripture is. And I think that the whole point is to awaken in them, to startle them into the reality that they're outside of the fellowship, not just of the church, but of Christ. And that they would be awakened to that and come back to Christ. So that's the second thing. The goal is the period of the church. These next two are, are, are quicker. Um, the third one, the goal is that the pride of the church would be killed. I put verse 6. We could also, oh, somebody's fixed it. Verse 2 and 6. Verse 2 and 6. Uh, it says, and you are arrogant, and verse 6, and your boasting's not good. So there's, there's arrogance and boasting. These things are pride. And Jesus wants those things to be gone. Arrogance and boasting, which results in pride. Your boasting's not good. How are they prideful? How are they prideful? Follow this closely. I don't think it's too tough. We've touched on it here and there. But I want you to make sure you follow the argument in 1 Corinthians 5 of how they're, they're prideful. Paul is telling them they're prideful because they are tolerant of unrepentant sin in their church. Not only that, they're boasting about it. This isn't not necessarily that they're applauding it like, oh, we got Fred. He hooks up with his mom. Look at him go. And that's in our church. Like, they're not doing that, right? That's ridiculous. That's silly. That's not what's going on. But what they are is they know about Fred hooking up with his mom or his stepmom, and they're just fine with it. They're fine with it. We tolerate those kinds of things. Um, so we've got to be careful here. But they were prideful because they were ignoring it and they were tolerating it in the church. They're open-minded, so to speak. They probably looked at themselves as welcoming, and it doesn't matter what you do, you can come be a member of this church. Wherever you are, you can, you can be a member. And there's a distinct difference saying it doesn't matter where you are, you can come to our church versus doesn't matter where you are, you can be a member of our church. Those are two different things, right? And this church prided themselves on their members being fine where they are. We're the grace church and we let our members be wherever they are. And they want to be the grace church. Now, you hear that and you say, well, I want to be the grace church. Me too. I think being the Grace Church is probably a good thing. We should all want to be the Grace Church. But being the Grace Church can't mean at the expense of being tolerant of sin. So God is gracious, right? God is merciful, but he doesn't tolerate sin. So I want to be, I want Remedy Church, for heaven's sakes, yes. We want to be the Grace Church. I want that no, bad, right? But not at the expense, or that doesn't mean that we also are fine with ongoing willful, unrepentant sin in the lives of our members, or even uh, regular attenders that are believers. So they were prideful of the fact that they were the grace church at the expense of being tolerant of sin. 
they were actually smug over this newfound enlightenment of intolerance that they had. They're arrogant and prideful. We'll let anybody come here, no matter who you are, and you can be a member of our church. And Paul is addressing that pride in their church and wants it to be killed. And Lord, if we ever have that, may he kill that pride quick in us, that we would boast about being tolerant of sin. We should never be tolerant of sin. So that's the third goal. We see that uh, the individual salvation, the purity of the church, the pride of the church being killed, and lastly, and ultimately, I think this is most ultimately, the goal is uh, the glory of God and the reputation of the church being upheld. Now, when I say the church, I mean church universal here. I mean Christ's bride, right? If my wife's reputation is, is diminished falsely or even uh, unfalsely, my, my, my goal is to uphold her reputation. Not at not the expense of something she did wrong, but I want her, Christ wants his, the reputation of his church to be upheld. That's his bride. He died for her. He wants her reputation to not be trash all the time. He wants her reputation to be upheld because when he died, he declared her holy and blameless and without blemish so that she could come and be his bride forever. And so the reputation of the church needs to be upheld. And not only that, the glory of God. And you can see even in the verse 1, it says, It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and even of a kind that's not tolerated among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife. The whole passage starts by saying, not even the world, not even the pagans condone what you're condoning in the church. And we need to think as a church, if you would tolerate this, what this church or any church or the Corinthian church is saying to the world about God whenever they have inaction about sin. They're saying to the world many things. God and his glory is not a big deal. We don't need to put on display what the cross can do. We can be fine. We can say that sin is not a big deal. They can say that the God of the Bible doesn't really fully change people. And we need to realize that church discipline is designed by God to declare his glory to the world that it does. So the glory of God is the goal, that it be upheld. So this is why church discipline is designed. It's designed by God to show the world that he doesn't just uh, ultimately judge people of their sin and save them or forgive them for their sin, but he's also the supreme savior from sin. I'll say it a different way, that Jesus isn't just the partner of our sin, he's the purifier of us because he saves us from being uh, held captive to ongoing sin. He's both things. He's not just our forgiver. He's not just our partner. He's also the one that saves us from sin. He's the one that purifies us. And whenever we, uh, whenever we allow ongoing sin, we say to the world that he doesn't do that. He can't do that. That Jesus dying on the cross does not empower us to turn from sin and live for him, with him, and through, them, through him. But instead, uh, we don't have the power to do that. And that's not true. The glory of God and the gospel of Jesus is, uh, the reality is that we do have not just the ability or by God's grace to be forgiven of our sin, but to also be purified from our sin. So that means you and me. Ongoing sin in your life, you think that you can't get a handle on, that you can't get control over, that you can't beat, greed, sexual morality, whatever it is. You see the big list here. Drunkardness, whatever. You do absolutely by the power of the, of the Holy Spirit because of Christ's death have the absolute ability to be purified from that. 
Now, here's how I want to conclude. And I think it's the best way to conclude this. Because I'm doing it. No, I'm just kidding. I think it's the best way because Jesus put the gospel right there in verse 7b, right? And, and you're never going to fail by concluding with the gospel. So, dumb. All right, here we go. Um, I think that looking at a text like this, and when we look at it, we're like, because we've been thinking about it in the abstract, right? This isn't a reality in our church. We didn't have to bring up 1 Corinthians 5 because this Wednesday I heard something terrible, right? We're going through and we're just looking at it. So when we're looking at it, there isn't like a direct application that you can say, oh yeah, uh, Jim, Bob, and Sally, we've got to pray for them. hope they repent. Like, instead, we're thinking about ourselves. And so when we, I think if we would miss the point of a message like this if we didn't cause us to stop and ask ourselves, is there any ongoing unrepentant sin in my life? Because it's a big deal. All of our sin, as it says in verse 6, leavens the whole lump. Our sin leavens the church. Sin causes the, the church to be uh, not a new lump, not pure. So is there any ongoing unrepentant sin in my life? What sin do I need to confess before God? What areas is he calling me to obey that I continue to be disobedient in? Uh, what am I doing right now that uh, he has called me to stop? Um, what has he called me to do that I'm not doing? And I want to invite all of us in the next few moments to stop and think and pray and journal and write and read and confess, think deeply about that over these next few moments, these next few songs. This isn't close the Bible, close my mind, not think about it anymore. This is a time for us all to think. Now, here's, here's the thing. As you're doing that, verse 7, I want us to hear the gospel. I want us to make sure we understand. Verse 7b, for Christ... Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. That's absolutely crucial. So when we're giving you or instructing you or or, or imploring you or exhorting you to think through ongoing unrepentant sin, we should never ever do that and just leave you there, right? We need to help you understand and hear and respond to the gospel. The gospel is, verse 7, Christ, the Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, Christ has gone to the cross. Christ has made the payment for that. You are in Christ fully forgiven of that. You have the absolute power to overcome that. There's absolutely no doubt that repentance in your life equals right standing with God immediately. And so Paul is reminding us to act and according to the way that God has already chosen to consider us in Christ. He's considered us pure. He's considered us holy. He's considered us perfect. Therefore, we repent and then we are restored unto that. And so the gospel, the good news of Jesus is that anything is forgiven. You can't out the the flowing of mercy and grace of the cross. And so when we're instructed to repent, we always need to be reminded that repentance is coming to a loving, gracious Savior. He loves you. He died for you. And he invites you in like the father invites the younger brother. Runs out to you, grabs you, hugs you, kisses you, weeps with you that you've returned, and shushes you and said, you're not going to be a servant. You're my son and my daughter. Come home. We're throwing a party. This is the good news of the gospel. This is how the father receives us. This is how Christ so loves us. And so in these next few moments, even as we go into the Lord's Supper, it's a celebration of that amazing sacrifice that has been made, his body and his blood.
or sacrifice for us so that we can be forgiven. So in these next three songs, when we take the Lord's Supper, I want you to think and pray. You can come to the uh, table. You can get the elements and come back. I'll lead us in the Lord's Supper together. If you're not a believer in Christ, or I would even add, if you have ongoing sin that you are absolutely not going to repent of, I would ask that you just observe the Lord's Supper. Just observe. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for your text, this word, this Bible. We know that it has definitely hard sentences, but we thank you for verses like verse 7, the great sweet gospel reminder that Christ Jesus, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, that we are not stuck in our sin, that we have the power not just to be pardoned from our sin, but to be purified from our sin, that the old man, the old nature, the flesh can be killed off and the new nature, the new lump, the new man is what's true of us because of Jesus. And we celebrate that. We are new creations in Christ. Behold, the old has passed, the old has passed, the new has come. And so Lord, I pray for us all in our hearts that if we have ongoing, unrepentant, willful sin in our life, that we would repent this morning, right now. We would turn. And Lord, I pray for the person here that's thinking about the conversation they ha- might have to have with someone. They have a brother or a sister in Christ that they know that maybe they've tolerated their sin. They've been okay with it. They've turned a blind eye. They might not even be a member of this church, a member of another church, or maybe not even a church. I pray for my brother and sister right now who's thinking of that person and that you would cause them, God, to be bold. That they wouldn't shrink down. They wouldn't get nervous. They wouldn't run scared. They would be bold. They would go to that person lovingly, no doubt with tears in their eyes, compassion in their mouth. But Lord, they would go. They wouldn't allow themselves to tolerate it because you don't tolerate it. They wouldn't be pharisaical, but they would be Christ-like. And they would call their brother or sister out of sin and towards Christ. Be with us now, Lord, as we think and worship and pray. We reflect on our own hearts and our brothers and sisters around us. And God, that you would make this a sweet time of repentance, a sweet time of worship, and a sweet time of uh, just remembering Jesus and what he's done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.